0: On air, online, on digital radio and television and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Great to have you along this Wednesday on the program in the next hour. We're talking water. Can TAS irrigation get its redesign scheme for the Tamar Valley over the line? Second time around.
2: It won't just fall over, we'll analyse where we get to and there'll be um, scenarios at play at what that looks like, but ultimately we do need that strong irrigator support.
1: And there's a new national plan to slow the spread of varroa mite in Australia.
2: There'll be
3: extension officers to help beekeepers. If they're not quite picking it up through the education components that are available to work one-on-one with those beekeepers, and particularly in those states where we don't have Varroa, help support those beekeepers, set up some industry surveillance programs.
1: More on those Varroa extension offices shortly, plus we'll look at chemical shortages that have emerged for grain growers too, and you can join the conversation at any time, 0438 936. Well, let's stay with biosecurity and revisiting an announcement made by the federal government yesterday that will change the way farmers contribute to a new biosecurity levy. After years of lobbying from the farm sector for a sustainable funding model for services such as sniffer dogs at airports and X-ray machines in mail centres, the new levy was announced in last year's federal budget. Now, the commitment set out that passengers importers, Australia Post and farmers contribute to fund the biosecurity services designed to keep pests and diseases out of the country. Under the changes announced yesterday and expected to come into effect on July 1, agriculture, fisheries and forestry are still expected to stump up 6% of the biosecurity funding. But as Agriculture Minister Murray Watt explained before a Senate committee last night, how that contribution is split will change to what he says is a fairer system.
4: We advised by the department that moving to this methodology would mean that some sectors would pay less than um, what they would have done under the original model, and that some would pay more. Okay, which um, ones? Will,
5: which ones will pay more?
4: So, the there are a number of sectors uh, that, as I understand it, don't charge industry levies at the moment for R and D and marketing and things like that. And the examples from memory I was given were tomatoes. Right. Uh, some of the berry industries. I can't remember if there are others. Those ones I remember those ones.
6: Deliveries.
4: Fisheries. Fisheries. Well That's fisheries.
6: They don't pay. Um
4: why right don't I like go through, Ms. Yeah.
6: Uh, So there's a number of industries that currently don't pay any levies under the existing ag levy system. And so under this revised model, we're sharing um, the apportionment of the levy across all industries. So those industries that don't pay ag levies will now be paying this biosecurity protection levy. So they're paying... Um, something new as opposed to the previous model which we were basing on um, the ag levy system. The point about
4: about inequities Mm -hmm. as I understand it that point that some groups were effectively going to escape paying the levy because they don't already charge their members levies. That was a big bone of contention for a number of groups. So um, and then, based on the figures, the examples that I've got here, um, moving to the GVP-based system is likely... These are all pretty rough figures, but is likely to mean uh, uh, less, a smaller amount contributed by, for example, the dairy industry, the wool industry, the eggs industry, the avocado industry, the wheat industry, cattle paying a little bit more than they would have paid... Um, they're the examples I've got in front of me, um, but the department may have others.
6: And the reasons for those adjustments is that uh, ag, ag industry levies are set by the industry and some industries have voluntarily chosen to pay a higher level of levy, so they might choose to pay more to cover higher marketing costs, for example.
4: And grains, I think, is a good example of that. As, as I understand it, the grains industry opted to pay relatively high levies for their RDCs right. compared to other sectors. So basing the new levy on that would mean that they faced a disproportionately high share compared to, for instance, those industries that currently don't pay any industry levies.
6: Or a lower or, or a, a lower low level. level.
4: And that was one of the inequity points. Mm. Right, okay. When, um, when, when when the argument that was being put to us was that that if you're going to charge this levy, then everyone should pay their share, not and and not just those who've already elected to pay levies.
1: Agriculture Minister Murray Watch responding to questions from the opposition's Queensland Senator Matt Canavan. You also heard from Bronwyn Jaggers from the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, responding to questions in there. Well, still on biosecurity because the National Management Group for Varroa Destructor has endorsed a transition to management plan which will see the shareable costs of the response revised to a limit of $100 million. Now, the revised response plan comes nearly five months after Australia gave up on efforts to eradicate the bee parasite. The 24-month plan will include the deployment of more than 30 Varroa development officers across the country to prevent the spread of Varroa mite into other states. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council has welcomed the plan and CEO Danny Lafever is speaking here to Kim Honan.
3: Yeah, 26 affected parties at the National Management Group, the NMG, agreed uh on friday afternoon with a couple of outstanding votes to come in over the weekend which have all now been received so we have a unanimous agreement finally
7: and so what does this transition to management um plan entail because this is a you know a revised plan that you know industry has been waiting on since what the 19th of september
3: yeah it's been a long time in the making it's been quite a, a big negotiation Um, It's got a lot of parties involved with a lot of needs and wants and and a lot of people uh, wanting to spend as little as possible now that we're unable to eradicate as well. So it's been a lot of negotiation over the last four months to try and get it to the point where it is now. And it's still not a perfect plan, um, but we're able to get agreement, which is great.
7: Do, Do you know how much the eradication efforts actually cost to get to this point?
3: Yeah, we won't know until we have the final costs come in from DPI.
7: Okay so what does this uh, new response plan entail?
3: So the response plans are really focused on education and extension, really getting those opportunities out to beekeepers right across the country um, to make sure that they're comfortable with the management of varroa and understand the pest, not only uh, in the areas where the pest is already uh, established in New South Wales but across every jurisdiction. We want to make sure that the beekeepers are comfortable in being able to do the surveillance to find it, uh, but once found it comfortable in what management options they need to deploy um, and how can they monitor and keep continual vigil looking out for those pests.
7: And what's the, the time frame for this plan? Is it for 12 months or 24
3: uh so we're, we we worked really hard as zabik to lobby uh, all the affected parties um to try and get an extension so uh, for the first time, a transition the management plan is is being granted to go longer than the the um, stipulated twelve months uh, and we 've been able to push it out to twenty four months. But the activities themselves will be 12-month activities, but they're not bound by that time frame. So we can make sure that our beekeepers uh, will have access to these resources and training and um, extension officers right through the whole season.
7: What are some examples of some of those activities that uh, beekeepers would be able to access during this time period?
3: So, Tokyo College uh, through the DPI are establishing uh, workshops, face-to-face workshops, a full day, uh, which will take beekeepers right through the whole process of RAWA, including the biology, the treatment options, how to look for its surveillance monitoring. Now, that will be rolled out over 100 of those right across the country in every jurisdiction, um, which will give beekeepers the ability to attend face-to-face meetings, but in addition to that, it will be um, online content, fact sheets, videos, a whole raft of educational material that'll be available for beekeepers so that they can access it and learn the best way that they want to learn as well. Um, to support that education uh, uh, campaign, there'll be extension officers. So extension officers, or they're being called VDOs, uh, Rural Development Officers, uh, will be in every jurisdiction uh, across Australia to help beekeepers um, if they're not quite picking it up through the education components that are available, to work one-on-one with those beekeepers to develop their management plans, understand the pest, look at what might best suit them in terms of treatment in their areas. And particularly in those states where we don't have ROA, um, help support those beekeepers, set up some industry surveillance programs where we can have a network of sentinel hives looking for that early detection, so that our best our beekeepers can be best prepared um, for when it gets to their to their areas.
7: So, how many VDOs will be employed?
3: Um, well, the budget that will allow for just over thirty across the whole country. Um, but there's some flexibility in that. So it's on a needs basis, depending on on how much those states or jurisdictions or the beekeepers in those states want and need that support.
7: So from your understanding, has the cost of the response been revised down?
3: So the way the response works and the way we budget for the response is we provide a, a upper limit, a maximum that DPI can spend. And as they approach that upper limit, they have to come back to the consultative committees to talk through that budget. So we know that given we stopped short of eradication and the previous response plan was going out for three years, there has been significant cost savings. So the previous upper limit of $136 million cost shareable, which is the amount shared between the parties, not... Including the cost of the DPI, the lead agency, has now been revised down, revised down to $100 million as an upper limit to get us through the next 24 months with the, with the uh, transition and management plan.
1: Danny Lefevre, CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council, talking about that revised national plan uh, in relation to tackling the spread of varroa mite. Up next, details on the revised Tamar irrigation scheme.
4: Pick up the March issue of Gardening Australia magazine for expert advice on growing bulbs. See inspiring garden makeovers, five ways to create a veggie bed and learn about she-oaks and mid-season apples. And in Organic Gardener, small gum trees for urban gardens, tips for success with garlic, plus attract wildlife to your backyard and the key to healthy soil. Gardening Australia and Organic Gardener, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au.
0: Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith.
1: We're at 17 past 12. The deadline for securing interest in the redesigned Tamar Irrigation Scheme is just weeks away. The first round of water sales failed to meet the threshold for a much larger project... TAS Irrigation's Jacob Gerke explains how the new design will service farmers on both sides of the Tamar River.
2: Yeah, so the the scheme originally was designed based on the expressions of interest around the area and it was designed um, to to suit those expressions of interest, which was a 24,500 megalitre scheme. When we took it out to water sales approximately 18 months ago, that interest didn't develop into as many water sales as what was needed to support that larger scheme. So it's been redesigned now to focus directly on where the interest lied in that first round of water sales. So really focusing on those areas.
1: Paint a picture of where the water is coming from, how far it'll travel and where it will travel
2: through. Yeah, so the the water is coming out of Trevallon Dam. Um, It'll cross the Tamar River sort of near Lagana area and run down the East Tamar, run down the East Tamar to just north of the batman bridge where it will cross back over into rowella and go back up around beacons field and beauty point up in there and it will also branch off and head along towards sort of industry roadway and head down to pipers river and pipers brook pipes yeah all piped um underground pipe across the river will cross the river predominantly poly pipe across the river so there'll be two pump stations one um at trevallen dam and then another uh, along the way um towards pipers river pipers brook and is
1: that where the, the large costs are involved, is piping it from Trevallon to those locations? Yeah,
2: the, the large costs are obviously in the, in, the, in the big piece of infrastructure, the the large um, polypipe to transfer this amount of water. There's 130 kilometres of pipe and the, the pump stations. And we have what's called balance tanks in the middle where the water's transferred into for the scheme.
1: So will there be any land that will need to be acquired uh, to, to get that water to these farmers?
2: Uh, no, only sort of small, very small parcels where the pump stations and the tanks would be located, but there's no large parcels of land that would be required there um, on the corner of, on the edge of the Trevallon Dam there, and we're working with the landowner and um, potentially some of the existing infrastructure around there where we can house it as common infrastructure. And you'll get that sorted beforehand? Well and truly beforehand. We're looking at options now. We, we constantly sort of, we've had conversations with irrigators already around the um, their openness for that and we've we've got options around where we can locate those.
1: So what's on the table in terms of uh, the volume of water that farmers can access and how much it'll cost them?
2: Yeah so the volume of water that's um, available is thirteen and a half thousand and megalitres per season so we break it into a, both a summer and winter irrigation season so um, in total there's 27,000 um, megalitres available and for one a one-off purchase of those megalitres the initial capital outlay is $2,450 per megalitre. So um, we have a minimum purchase of 10 megalitres. So your initial investment, if you were on that small scale, would be $24,500 to buy the water entitlement, which is a 100-year water entitlement. And then... The charges that are ongoing from that, so what we call our annual charges, um, drop down depending on where you're located on the scheme. They range from $160 per megalitre to $230 per megalitre, depending if you go through um, one or two pump stations.
1: What is the threshold that you need to reach to get this scheme over the line? Yeah,
2: so we're, we're targeting to sell 75% of the the water available in the scheme. So in terms of the threshold we're trying to reach is 12,000 megalitres or 11,800 megalitres is what we're attempting to reach in this. And that that is all about developing strong irrigator and landowner support for the scheme, which uh, allows us to go for our funding from the state and federal governments with a really um, strong perspective saying that we've got commitments here to buy this water. So it means that the business case and the economics for the scheme really stack up and it's a really... um, it, it makes the decisions for governments it's not a, a build it and they will come type scheme, it's it's about showing that real true support and that, that's worked really well for um, Tasmanian irrigation in the past.
1: So if you don't get these 12,000 megs of interest, does this scheme just fall over? This is your second crack at doing this?
2: Yeah, no, it, it won't just fall over, we'll analyse what the applications we get, we're really um, buoyed by the confidence in the area at the moment and the interest we're getting, so um, it won't just fall over we'll analyze where we get to and there'll be um, scenarios at play at what that looks like but ultimately we do need that strong irrigator support and won't be cheaper ever to buy this water so we've held the price at the $2,450 a megalitre from the last round of water sales in reality for the 25% capital contribution we're seeking that price um, is is higher so that price will increase post these water sales so it won't be cheaper it will never be cheaper to buy this water in the area.
1: Has the financial dynamics of agriculture in that valley? changed in the last couple of years since you first flagged this scheme?
2: Yeah, there is certainly a lot more interest from um, people trying to seek land and um, grow their investments. They might have ex- existing um, vineyards or berries in the region. And they're trying to expand their, expand into the area, but there are also other people who currently don't have land holdings that are trying to um, seek land and grow in the area. And I think also all the time is existing landowners in the area realizing what water can do and what the high value the tamer valley is a produces um, some of the best berries some of the best vines in the world so people were um, realizing that all the time and looking to invest in that
1: so what have you got coming up uh in terms of providing further information to farmers
2: yeah so we're out and about um every day um matt Lowe, our project manager's out um every day seeing landowners and um, having individual one-on-one appointments but we're on the on the 20th of February, we've got um, some further drop-in days, so we really encourage people to, to call in and if they've got questions about the scheme, if they've got the water sales contracts or applications there that they want some assistance um, to fill out or have got questions on, to call in. So we've got one at um, 9.30 at um, Pipersbrook Fire Station and then we, on the 20th of February and then another one at 1 o'clock at Rowella Hall um, on that day. So we really, really encourage if the people have got questions or um, some sort of... Uh, query or just really where do I sign the paperwork to come and um, we'll have a team of people there to um, answer the questions.
1: TAS Irrigation's Program Manager, Jacob Gerke, on the redesigned Tamar Irrigation Scheme. We'll cross to the Weather Bureau shortly and get the latest from the newsroom as well. And after that, in the second half of the program, can you imagine having to defuse bombs on your farm? It's the reality for farmers in Ukraine, and you'll hear from the country's Milk Processors Association on how war has affected uh, the dairy sector. It's a fascinating listen, so stick with us. But back home, uh, grain growers are battling to secure supplies of critical farm chemicals after the wet summer prompted huge amounts of summer spraying. Joe Pedler is General Manager of Sales and Marketing at CropSmart, and he says chemical suppliers weren't prepared for the big demand because of the forecasts of a dry summer
8: it's a really interesting time for chemical availability given what's happening around the world and in Australia number one is we've got extreme demand in, within australia uh, all of the product takes a time period to, to get to the country which you know we're back to the similar discussions we had at covid and we continue to underestimate, um, or the industry continues to underestimate the demand. So let me, let me give you a good example uh, of, of why we find ourselves in this situation is all of the weather forecast presented an extremely dry summer, so they were all talking El Nino. So pretty much everyone similar to us, I imagine, has the, the forecasting meetings and says, this is what we sold last year, let's back that off, we're not going to sell this, this amount. We get into the season, we get some really high rainfall in November, so we all regroup and we say, we we got that wrong. Um, we're going to sell a lot more product than we have on order. We make the changes and we try and I think we're going to bring product in by Christmas. Uh, once again, we get more and more rainfall, so the demand increases further. The other thing that gets thrown into the mix is uh, in Australia, we have the shipping the, the port industrial action which delays containers being unloaded in key ports um, so that adds an extra couple of weeks onto getting the product so once again we, we kind of reach this point where the demand in australia is is greater than the speed in which we can get the product to the
0: customer okay so there are a, a whole range of factors coming together to contribute to that supply shortage
8: yes and I think, it, I mean, it gets back to predicting and, and forecasting, uh, and that's always a very difficult thing to do over summer. We've had, you know, across the country some extreme summer rainfall. So for our particular network, we've we have never, I've been with CropSmart nearly 14 years, we've never had this amount of rain, uh, you know, probably three inches minimum of rainfall across our whole entire network, I can't recall a time
0: like that. So. Demand is at an all-time high, unusual high demand for the industry. What is availability like right now? If I walked into one of the shops today and said, oh, I'd, I'd like three shuttles of glyphosate, could I get them? Uh, in most stores, you probably couldn't. But if you'd ordered them a few weeks ago, you could. So have people then been caught out and, and they haven't been able to get the chem when they want it and hence they've had to uh, have the boom sp- boom spray sitting there until the chem comes in? I think there would be some of that, definitely around the country. And with glyphosate being the, the most used chemical, is it the one that's it's got that's in the most short supply? Anything really, but uh, glyphosate, um, ammonium sulphate is is, is a,
8: a a granular product which is put in the boom sprays to, to aid water quality and and increase uptake of of summer chemicals. Uh, that's probably been the shortest product in the market where we just. The market was out of that for, for four weeks. So, uh, but yeah, we're seeing a lot of the a lot of the other common common sprays: glyphosate, paraquat, um, ammonium sulphates. So yeah, the the locally made products. I mean, we locally make in our factory some oils and adjuvants. Fortunately, when you're, when you're dealing with, you know, part of one of the ingredients is a canola oil, for example, which is made in Australia, no dramas there. We can get those products made, which is fantastic. Obviously, we just rely overseas on a number of, of these key actives like glyphosate. We don't make glyphosate in Australia. So those, t- those particular products are affected.
0: And does it just highlight, oh, I suppose, like we saw recently with, with urea shortages because we didn't have stock in the country and had to wait for... Chips uh, to arrive does it just highlight how dependent ag is on on international supply chains
8: yes i, th- I think it does I-, I thought well i'd forgotten a lot of these skeletons that were in the closet that we found out over covid and we'd got back to some normality but yeah the reality is we are one big island australia and we rely on a lot of product coming from overseas in the agricultural game
0: and you talked a lot about those covid disruptions uh, Uh, Have there been people since COVID, perhaps the larger grain growers, who've said we're going to carry a lot more stock on hand so that we know that we've got it sitting there in our shed when we need it? Yes, I I think there's a lot of people that have
8: have changed to thinking around that differently. I think during this time we're probably surprised at how quickly people forgot about that and got a bit more relaxed and thinking everything will be fine again. So I think those particular customers have been found out. About 100% my advice would be continue with everything that's going on in the world. And obviously you throw in a little thing like you know Australian domestic industrial action, which was unpredictable. No one was going to predict that, that that would happen. Be more organized because if you're trying to save five or ten cents a liter or five to ten dollars a ton to try and get the absolute best price on a product, that is a lot riskier game to play than not having the product and either having your boom sprays parked up or not being able to, to sew at the right time or, or apply urea last year at the right time.
1: That was Joe Pedler, General Manager of Sales and Marketing at CropSmart, speaking with Angus Verley. Thanks for that update, Ellie. Later in the second half of the program, I'm going to take you inside a commercial greenhouse to find the perfect red rose for your loved one today
9: just prior to christmas we go through with a strategic plan of uh, pruning and pinching in order to force the crop to arrive just at the right time
1: It's a real balancing act, uh, getting the roses to bloom this week. We're going to drop inside uh, that greenhouse at Beaconsfield in the state's north, a little closer to one. Richard Bailey will also have the latest market information on sheep and cattle prices for us as well. But before that, the all-important forecast. Michael Conway has the details from the Bureau of Meteorology. Michael, a little chilly today, I'd have to say.
10: Yeah, yeah.
11: Hey, Larissa, it's um, much cooler than yesterday. For instance, the, well, the biggest exa- the biggest uh, difference from yesterday is Flinders Island, which had uh, thirty-seven I, from memory yesterday, and now we're now it's at nineteen degrees, heading for for uh, for, for nineteen degrees. It's it's uh, at its uh, forecast max at the moment. It may go slightly over, but yeah. So that that was an amazing drop, um, and most of the state is, is five to ten at least degrees below what we had yesterday.
1: And what's driving that?
11: Uh, we had a cold front. The cold front went through yesterday, the strong cold front, which which triggered all the storms in Vic and, and around our northeast yesterday and north coasts. Um, but that has gone through and we've just got this rather dry westerly wind behind it and uh, it's cool. But it, what's going to happen over the next few days and into this weekend is it's just going to gradually warm up each day and remain quite quite uh, settled. So no rain is expected for the next up till at least the weekend, uh, except for a few light showers, mainly today and tomorrow, about about the west. But that's about it for, for any precipitation. Yesterday, we the highest falls um, were at Stress Gordon. They had 36 millimetres in the west there, and Mount Reed also 31. North Boomerang had 30 That that's in the... Uh, the Huon, I believe, catchment. The, there's been no rain since 9am. Any no significant rainfalls in the gauges since 9am.
1: And the rainfall that's due on the weekend, not not a great deal uh, for that system.
11: Uh, On the weekend, there will just be some, just again, some light showers into the west possible. There's not much rain around, perhaps uh, early next week. Maybe Tuesday, we start to get, the ridge starts to break down. We could get a a bit of a northeasterly flow, uh, bring some light showers at this stage, it's looking like, but that could increase. Uh, So next Tuesday, perhaps, is the next chance for some, any sort of statewide rain.
1: Okay. What's happening with conditions uh, with regard to coastal waters and swell today?
11: Yeah, sure. So um, the winds generally today, we've got west to southwestlies at uh, 20 to 25 knots. Um, sorry, 20 to 30 knots. They'll be easing to 15 to 25 knots during the day, although remaining uh, 20 to 30 knots in the south. Winds w- tending west to northwest in the afternoon. And tomorrow, west to leaves at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots in the south at times and tending north to north easterly in the east in the afternoon, winds ease to 5 to 15 knots in the north in the evening. The swells today and tomorrow for the west and south we've got a south at 3 to 4 metres for both days. In the north there's a westerly at 1 to one 1.5 metres today easing to around 1 metre tomorrow. And in the east there's a northeasterly swell today at 1 to 2 metres easing to about 1 metre tomorrow and a southerly swell 1 to one 1.5 metres um, for both days. Any
1: warnings, Michael?
11: We do. We've got the warnings have eased off. That we've got strong warning for eastern and southern waters from Wineglass Bay around to Lae Rocky Point, and tomorrow strong wind warning for the for southern waters, for
1: south-east and south coasts. Too easy. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks, Larissa. Michael Conway, Conway there at the Weather Bureau.
6: With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Off to the beach. Take the
11: cricket.
1: Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? <laughs> ABC Sports, expert coverage of every test. Big shouty
6: out. One day up. Australia is celebrating. And T20. Over the rope for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app.
4: You're with
0: Larissa Smith. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, Australian farmers face many challenges, but they pale in comparison with the difficulties Ukrainian farmers have faced over the last two years since war came to their country. Audrin Dykin is the president of the Milk Processors Association of Ukraine and says some farmers have left the country, while others who remained lost many of their workers to the armed forces, while others are trying to defuse bombs themselves. He says many Ukrainian dairy farms also produce grain, so the blockade preventing grain exports are causing huge problems.
12: In Ukraine, we don't have like we have a lot of modern, very efficient dairy farms, but we have like maximum ten which are like specialized on dairy, on milk. Most of the farms are grain producers, and they have also like dairy farm. And the problem for the rest of the farmers is export of grain because of the Black Sea ports were blocked, and since September 23, it's. Deblocked and uh, it goes now. You were saying earlier that
13: just be, being a farmer in Ukraine, you, you hate the sound of planes now as well—the the sound of aircraft coming over because of um, things
12: like the the war and so forth. How much has it changed? What farmers are doing? But it, everything has changed. So we need to do other things. Is uh, farmers need to think for example 50% of employees on the farm should be mobilized to the army so you like you have like 20 men working on your farm 10 of them in the army now so you need to think what to do more efficient on your farm maybe to attract more women to work on your farm and uh, problem for the farmer is to sell because before the war was like we were part of global market and you produce and sell and now it is not possible as it was, as it was before. Okay. And of course many uh, like we don't have like farm itself. Uh, most of Ukrainian farms they're in the village. People live in the village. Uh, um, uh, people who live in the village they own the land which fa- if they give this land to farmer and farmer is paying rent to them, and he's, uh, like, responsible for those people. So if they go to army, he helps them to buy something what they need. If it's in uh, affected territories, they help them to get more food and so on and so on, like, social function. That sounds really hard, like a really difficult
13: environment to farm in. Yes.
12: It's not easy. And some of the pictures you showed today... Quite harrowing, right? The, the, the it's not the most horrible pictures, I would say. <laughs> like this, it was like light, very light version of them.
13: And so they were the light ones you were showing. Light one, yeah. yeah.
12: And that's fields that have been covered in mines. It, we have thousands, craters. thousands of such fields. Yep, it's a really big, big challenge for Ukrainian future how to demine those territories. It and will take a lot of time, but it will happen only after the finish of the war. And you were saying f- some farmers are trying to demine fields themselves. Yes. They invent something actually uh, as uh, farmers. We um, invested some money in to uh, roll a deminer. So we bought a deminer in the United States and f- like military deminer. And we start to produce such deminers for the farmers and they can use these deminers in front of the tractors. And it's like a local solution for to help farmers to. D- it's not demining; it's actually exploding, but it's better to explode the uh, roller, de- roller machines than to tractor or something more expensive. Um, and you showed
13: photos from your industry, the dairy industry as well, of massive dairy sheds that had been bombed or been um, um, damaged severely by the, the war themselves.
12: How, how much of your dairy industry had you lost? Up to 50% we were exporting uh, dairy products before the war now we are importing in in just i think it's like what is for sure that's more than 1 up to 200,000 cows were killed mm. on the farms
13: and so uh, clearly, there there is a message. You mentioned a lot of the farm workers went uh, to go and fight, literally for the army to ke- to So your country still exists, but farms are still needed for food for the country too, aren't they? Yeah, is, is that yeah. is that where a lot of your
12: produce goes now to literally just keep people fed in a war? Yeah, because if you stop production, then the economy of the country will die. So we need to push. It's our, as we say, there is a front for soldiers and there is a front for farmers. Mm. It's difficult, it's risky, but if we stop, what 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 is the risk of the farmer? He risks his money. What is the risk for the soldier? His life. Mm. So, other uh, Ukrainians, they have more risk than our farmers. And many of our farmers who lost their farm, they are now in military. So, we say that until we can uh, help making... Uh, agricultural business then we do business because someone needs to do it as soon as i can do it i will go to army so that's the reality today you, you had a case study of a dairy farm and the headline was farming
13: under bombs like that's that i suppose goes to show the reality that those who are even still remaining on the farm and producing yes. it's not um, without danger is it it's
12: dangerous yeah yeah,
13: yeah. yes uh, so what do you want us in Australia or, or your friends in agriculture around the world to know about Ukrainian farmers and what you're going through?
12: Uh, very important thing for our farmers is that we are a members of one group. that We have association and we really support each other. We, and this is very strong because in war you need support. And uh, that's actually what like my goal to come here to... Uh, show your farmers that uh, yes, sometimes we were also not happy because the prices were low. One year we were increasing production, one year decreasing production it was like very bad but if this is not bad, you're lucky, I would say. So you need to ev- evaluation, evaluate, yeah? Yeah, evaluate, yeah? yeah. Uh, what you have and uh, always be together. Mm. Because you don't know what will be tomorrow. Mm. The thing what was very good for us, like uh, big Russian market, it was many years, you, we were selling a lot of millions of tons of milk to Russia, we were happy, it's very close nearby, but one day it, it's our, it was very good for us, but now it's turned out to be a completely different story. Uh, do you think you'll see an end to the war anytime soon? Yeah, sooner or later, yes, but I don't <laughs> believe it will end soon. Mm. Is
13: it hard to come to Australia and speak an event like this to an industry that's been going through a good time, let's say, uh, um, when it's you've not
12: had What is your fault in that? What, yeah. is, should, what should I blame you? I didn't come to Australia before because I was afraid to fly so far. But after the start of the war, I don't afraid anything, so I, I don't care now. <laughs> that's the reason. It, will Ukrainian agriculture
13: be able to grow again when the war Actually,
12: ends? that's one of the reasons I want to see in Australia, because you manage to build quite a good agriculture. You are good in mm. dairy sector. You export a lot of dairy products. And uh, anyway, for Ukraine, we have no any other choice because we need to rebuild not only our agriculture, we need to build a new agriculture, where we will, which will be based on added value and processing. Mm. We need to process a lot. Uh, Russia will not disappear after the war. When the war will finish, Russia will leave, and they can uh, attack us again. So we need to be ready for that, and we need to go into added value production, and milk is one of the things which is, there is a big potential in Ukraine for that. It was before the war, and it will be after war, and just uh, keep it in mind that 8 million Ukrainians are abroad now, and we need to bring them back.
1: Ukrainian farmer, uh Audron Dyken, who is the president of the Milk Processor Association of Ukraine and also head of Agri-Council Ukraine, speaking with Warwick Long, and it's really hard to imagine what it would be like to farm while a war is going on around you. Some really fascinating insights at the Australian Dairy Conference in Melbourne this week.
9: New from ABC Books. One of Australia's most experienced court reporters, Jamel Wells, goes on a regional road trip inside country courtrooms in her new book, The Outback Court Reporter.
6: What goes on in a local courtroom can tell you a lot about the life and fiefdoms
9: of a town. A sometimes funny, sometimes tragic look at courtrooms dotted across Australia. The Outback Court Reporter by Jamel Wells. Book and audiobook available in bookshops and online.
0: On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, you're with Larissa
1: Smith. We'll catch up with livestock reporter Richard Bailey in about five minutes from now. But it is Valentine's Day. Have you been on the receiving end of any roses or have you splurged for your loved one? For the state's two commercial rose growers, it's been a hectic time picking thousands of red stems for their busiest day of the year. Steve Klimick has been producing cut flowers in his greenhouse at Beaconsfield for almost 20 years.
9: We're standing here in the greenhouse. It's a very pleasant 30-odd degrees in here at the moment. And we're just having a look at some of the rows of red roses that have been pruned off for Valentine's Day.
1: Been and completely cleaned out, I should say.
9: Com- completely, completely cleaned out. The row that we're standing in front of here has maybe two stems left to go out of uh, hundreds of plants.
1: You've got some other colours along here, though. Does everyone choose red or they're happy to go with a white or a apricot?
9: We do sell a lot of colours as well the pressure goes on the red varieties yeah, you know, red roses because that's just what you know Valentine's Day has been associated with and unlike some other crops we can't just magically plant more to satisfy the the need so the actual process for getting them to flower Correctly, so that they're ready for harvest. Valentine's Day actually begins in October of the previous year, Um, and then just prior to Christmas, we go through with a strategic plan of uh, pruning and pinching in order to force the crop to arrive just at the right time and then you're relying on a little bit of luck to not be too early and not be too late.
1: That must be a challenge because the last few weeks it's been reasonably warm.
9: It has and so we we make modifications you know during the, the growing by adding more and and less irrigation to, to modify that up. Uh, in the greenhouse environment as well, we also shade the greenhouses and if needs be, we, we top that shading up in order to just damp down the growth. Uh, and On different years, it's the other way around where we, you know, we need to remove some shading in order to accelerate the growth. So it's really a matter of working with, with each season and seeing what you can uh, modify to do that and keeping records from from each year as to to what worked, what didn't work, whether you were too early or or too late.
1: What variety is this one here?
9: This one here is Explorer um, and the other one is Adrenaline and in one of the other houses we grow Red Naomi and Bordeaux. All these varieties are specific cut flower varieties, so completely different than what you would find in a garden centre or for the home garden, uh, because the characteristics that we're looking for in cut flowers is different to that uh, you would see in a normal garden. These plants here will throw stems that are 70, 80, 90 centimetres long, yet in all reality the actual bushes are... 15 or 20 centimetres tall. So they're actually quite short little plants. In a garden situation, you'd end up with these massive long stems on tiny little plants, which are not great for appreciating at our eye level. It would be well beyond.
1: Do they have a scent?
9: Some do. There's a trade-off between scent in cut flowers and vase life. In general terms, stronger-smelling fruits, flowers have a shorter vase life than those that don't. So in the breeding process, it's a matter of comparing vase life to scent. So we do have a couple of strongly scented ones, a, a pink called Parfum de Grande, a spray rose called Scented Air. It is fascinating getting feedback from florists that people you know, poke their nose into a bunch of roses at the florist, And they're absolutely amazed when they do smell something strong, you know, rose sort of smell out of there. But that's the reason why uh, a lot of cut flowers don't have scent. In the breeding side of things, they're very much looking at how can we make these products last as long as possible, you know, maintain that stability and give the end customer, you know, the beautiful experience.
1: Do you feel there has been a shift towards buying local since the pandemic?
9: I think it's allowed people the opportunity to evaluate local product compared to imported product, particularly in our industry. But even, I would say, in most areas of agriculture, the, the consumers are getting information now that allows you to make a more informed decision about what the trade-offs are from a local product compared to an, to an imported product. And consumers speak by opening their wallets and, and spending money on local rather than imported product.
1: How many k's have you done up the highway in the last two
9: days? Not so many k's um, in the in the delivery van, but uh, it's not uncommon for me to walk about 15 to 20 kilometres a day within a 2,000 square metre uh, greenhouse establishment. This is well and truly our busiest week of the year. Pressure really comes down to roses for Valentine's Day. They're the flower that's associated with Valentine's Day. The second busiest period would be the Mother's Day you know, area. But, yeah, certainly as far as sales and volume, we're probably nearly month and a half, close to two months' worth of product is harvested within seven or eight days.
1: Steve Klimick from Premier Roses at Beaconsfield. Well, it's this time on a Wednesday we chat to livestock reporter Richard Bailey. Richard, have you bought any flowers for Mrs Bailey today?
10: <laughs> now hang on <laughs> I, I actually heard that story this morning it's a fascinating story isn't it because it's so often our flowers don't have much scent at all and uh, it's an interesting story
1: there, there's the trade off there for long stems versus the, the scent uh, yeah. but let's move on to perhaps not something that smells so fantastic in the cattle yards but how have cattle prices been travelling?
10: Yeah, Yesterday we had the biggest yarding of cattle for a Tuesday we've had for I reckon probably 12 months we had 200 trade and grown cattle um the market was a little bit easier in places uh, we lost the gains of the last couple of weeks yearling steers made two 230 to 248 cents heifers 228 to 256 cents and the seconds of the heifers 214 to 224 cents most of the grown steers and bullocks sold pretty well 230 up to a top of 270 cents and heavy export heifers 228 to 260 cents a kilo there were 70 cows the best cows averaged about five cents cheaper, but still sold pretty well, two ten to two hundred and twenty cents a kilo, and the seconds hundred and fifty to two hundred cents. A few very heavy bulls, hundred and forty cents. Just a reminder: tomorrow, it looks like we're going to have. We'll certainly have over two and a half thousand, maybe closer to three thousand cattle at Parana. Uh, Eleven o'clock start. If you want cattle, be a good place to go.
1: Okay, good offering there. That's the, when does the wiener sales kick off? The
10: wiener sales start on the 29th, which okay. is a fortnight from tomorrow.
1: Okay. Yep. What's happening with lamb and mutton?
10: Okay, over in the lamb yarding, a, a smaller yarding of lambs, a little bit better quality in the, in the trade and heavy lambs, still very few extra heavy lambs, and nowhere near the number of, of heavy and heavy trade lambs that you know we probably would expect. I think that'll probably change over the next few weeks. Um, the market was anywhere from sort of five to fifteen dollars cheaper, apart from the extra heavy lambs, which were were equal, but there were only a few pens. Um, processors paid anywhere from one hundred and ninety to two hundred and six cents for extra heavy lambs, one hundred and forty-two to one hundred and seventy-six for for heavy lambs. Trade lambs one hundred and eight to one hundred and fifty-six. Big range there, but it depended a lot depended on quality. They're not that keen on wooly lambs at the moment light trade lambs seventy three to one hundred and twelve and light lambs sixty eight to one hundred store buyers are pretty active again um, anywhere from eighty five to one hundred and five for light trade forty five to ninety eight for light and twenty to thirty dollars for very small lambs over in the mutton yard a little bit bigger yarding of two thousand eight hundred and fifty mutton. This job was a little bit cheaper, five to fifteen dollars cheaper, particularly the heavy heavy mutton. The best heavy mutton made fifty to fifty-seven dollars. Heavy forty to sixty-four. Medium weights forty to seventy, and very light five to ten dollars a head. And there weren't many of those, but uh, just a little bit cheaper. That just uh, flowed on from the cheaper market in Victoria and New South Wales.
1: Okay, we'll we'll get more from you on Friday, and uh, Meg Powell will chat to you then.
10: Good on you. Thanks,
1: Richard Bailey. There. Well, Joel Reinberger is hosting, hosting Afternoons from 1.30. What's on the show today, Joel?
5: Well, happy Valentine's Day to you. Oh, thanks. Have you got romance in your blood today? No. no <laughs> we don't do romance in our household.
1: I oh, just, I just really? got the happy Valentine's Day as I walked out the door. But that's about it. What about oh. you?
5: Uh, Look, nothing yet, nothing yet, but the day is young, the day is young, Uh, and look, on on our afternoons today, you know, if you don't have a valentine to curl up with, what is the thing to curl up with is a good, maybe slightly raunchy romance book, so we're going to talk to one of Australia's uh, most successful romance authors, she's got like 50, over 50 Mills and Boone's titles to her name. Right right's like, you know, three or four of them a year. Uh, so we're going to be having a chat to her about what romance means to her and maybe give some clues out for the uh, romantically befuddled about how you might be romantic for your partner uh, in that time coming up. Uh, we're also going to be meeting some young conductors. Um, have, you, have you been to see like a classical orchestra before? No,
1: I don't think I have my, my sister's the musical one in my family And she went to see um, David Helfcott Many years ago When he was performing in Hobart ah. Yeah, look, m- magic
5: And look, you know, a classical orchestra There is a person at the front Who is flailing their hands around And All of them, you know, everyone in the orchestra has their eyes glued to him. So there's these three young conductors, all musical backgrounds, but all just learning how to conduct and how to, you know, one of them's had to learn to dance less because <laughs> he's on the podium and he's basically boogieing as he's conducting it. No, 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 you can't do that. Because they're going to uh, read
1: that wrong, right? Like, is, is that for me to jazz it up or slow down?
5: <laughs> so, exactly right. So, we're going to go to this, uh, the TSO conducts these really high level, you know, national level courses for people and one of them is a conductor's course. So, we're going to go and meet three young conductors and the conducting teacher to find out what it takes to be a good conductor and to have all that passion on show uh, when you are in front of an orchestra and yet to remain in control oh,
1: fascinating stuff, you can catch it in about a half an hour from now, that's uh, Joel, but now I'll catch you uh, tomorrow from midday
8: What are the stories I like to hear about?
1: Food,
7: of course,
8: people who
11: are inspiring,
13: uh, local things and sports, I'm a big fan of sports and ABC radio, yeah
11: It's amazing, I love it